Welcome to Theatrically Speaking, the very first playwriting podcast. My name is Jonah Knight. Season one is republishing the long-lost first episodes of the show from back in 2007. And season two begins the new episodes. Now, a few things have changed since 2007, like the website. For more information about Theatrically Speaking or my other podcasts, please visit actualstorypodcasting.com. Next, back in 2007, you could number your episodes however you like, and I did this very creative numbering system that included episodes 4.1, 4.15, 4.2, and no actual episode 4. The numbering that the episodes have in your feed is the order that you should listen to them. So, welcome in to the Theatrically Speaking Wayback Machine. It's time to talk some plays. I hate movies, I don't watch TV, I can't read books, and I don't take kids to the zoo. Video games are gonna rot your brain, and all these internets are for idiots. But I love you, baby, dear, but you ain't no Shakespeare. Try to make me to be high class, and I would David Bammon on your ass. This is Theatrically Speaking, episode 6.1. Thank you for joining me today. My name is Jonah Knight. I am your host. This is a red-letter day. A coup d'etat, to coin the Norman phrase. Yes, it is important for two reasons. The the first one is that this is the 4th of July. It is a little bit after 9 p.m., and if I want to get this recorded, then i got to do it now. And I hear the firecrackers. I hear the bottle rockets. I hear stuff going on outside. So you may hear that, too. That should be fun. That should be very nice for you and for the ambiance of the show. Now, the second is something perhaps a little more significant than the 4th of July. Up until this point, I have made some pretty wild claims on this show. I have. And although they've all been true, there is one claim that I can no longer make. I have said often on this show that this, that this program, theatrically speaking, is in fact the only playwriting podcast in the history of the universe. But that is no longer true. That is no longer true. There is another. There is another, and it is called Brass Ring Writing, the the podcast from BrassRingWriting.com. I've mentioned those guys on the show before, and I would recommend to you guys that you go to iTunes and check out Brass Ring Writing, firstly, because there is now no longer just one playwriting podcast. There are but two And now that there are two, it is worth it for you to check them out. If you are a writer, if you are a playwright in particular, I think that you uh, and I, who I have already subscribed to the thing, um, should be checking these things out. We should get our information from all over the place. We should be as cooperative as possible. We're all in the same gang. And I think that this is good. This is an evolution. So, no, I can no longer say that this is the only playwriting podcast. Instead... Theatrically Speaking is now the longest-running playwriting podcast in the history of the world. I think that's the new catchphrase. All right. But Brass Ring Writing, here's the difference. Here's why I think this is cool and why I seriously, seriously don't see this as competition or anything like that. Firstly, competition uh, with podcasts is kind of ridiculous because there ain't no money. So it's not like they're going to take my sponsors or anything. You may have noticed there are no sponsors. Although I am open to that. And if you are a sponsor and you wish to advertise in this program, please send an email to jonah at jonahofthesea.com. 
Okay, but the other thing is that this program, theatrically speaking, is me, essentially monologuing. I make my notes, I think of the arc for a couple of episodes, and I sort of map some things out, and I stand here, and I talk. And there's not really a whole lot of um, spontaneity in these things. I mean, sure, my word choice, and I may think of something and go down a little path, but this is mapped out. This is something that I've thought about, that I want to talk about, and there you go. And it's primarily just my opinion. Brass Ring Writing is not that. It's not my opinion, because I'm not on the show. But it's also not just one person's opinion. There are three guys there, three writers, and they're sitting around there doing a roundtable thing. And there are a couple of things that I like about their program that they're doing that I'm not doing. I listen to them. If you are a writer, if you are a playwright, I suggest you check that out as well. Cool. Uh, And they didn't pay me to say that. They didn't even ask me to say that. But I'm going to say it anyway, because gal darn it, that's how I feel. That's what I think. All right. Cool. Other thing I want to do, and this is still uh, not quite in the program yet, I'm going to start doing this thing, if I can actually get around to updating the show notes on a regular basis, I'm going to begin something new over in the show notes. I'm going to uh, do, I don't know what I'm going to call it, I'll call it something like Cool Link of the Week, or something like that. As As I cruise down the intertubes of the Information Superhighway, I see all these neat things out there, and some of them are writing related, but many of them are not. They're not all writing-related, and I see a lot of things, and I like them, and I'm like, you know what? People should should look at that thing. People should see this crazy thing going on over here. I've come across a number of things, and I'm just going to start putting them out there once a week, you know? Um, and the first one that I'm going to put up is actually, I, I got to tell you, um, uh, firstly, it's a pretty it's a pretty wonky URL with, um, you know, slashes and dots and all these things that make your head wiggle. So I'm not going to give it out here. You got to go to uh, show notes over at uh, com. click on blog, and you'll see it there after I've put it up in a day or so. But if you are, if you were a uh, Lord of the Rings fan... Um, uh, I think this is pretty darn funny. Uh, it's a great, it's great something. Forget it. I'm not even going to tell you. I try to explain it, but there's going to be a link over there as soon as I put up the show notes. Um, and I recommend you check that out. That should be kind of fun. Cool. All right. There you go. All right. And 6.1, episode 6.1 is what this is. This is the first in a three-part uh, mini arc thing where I talk about how to incorporate and the effects of incorporating specific technical requirements into your script. This one is going to be about sets slash paints. Uh, the next two are going to be costumes slash props and lights slash sound. Uh, and I'm not sure which one the next one's going to be. I'll be thinking about it over the next week. If I have more ideas for um, props and costumes, I'll do that one next. If I have more ideas for... Uh, Lights and sound, I'll do that one next. But that's what's going to be happening here, and I'm going to try to give some specific examples, bits of advice, um, both from my perspective as a playwright as well as my perspective as a director-slash-producer of, of theatrical programming. Yeah. All right. So, so writing in uh, technical requirements for sets and paint. All right. So I, first thing I want to do is I want to talk about uh, two of my plays specifically, plays that I've mentioned here before. Uh, last last episode, two episodes ago, I mentioned a play of mine called Take Stock. Um, and I mentioned that this play in particular is something that I was very specific uh, about writing in technical requirements for as far as the set design goes. 
Uh, and I'm going to read you, actually, uh, what I wrote here. Now, I pulled this up. I haven't looked at this play in a while because, as I mentioned before, I knew that I needed to get back to it and do something to it, so I haven't thought about it in a little while. I pull up this page here, and I'm going to read you what I have written down under setting. All right. A ritzy penthouse suite. Atop a landing upstage is a door to the hotel hallway. An archway leads to the kitchen and a second off to the bedroom, bathroom, and guest room. There is also a door leading to the balcony. There is a liquor cabinet, a dark stir- a desk sturdy enough to stand on with a chair, and lockable drawers used as a filing cabinet. A coffee-slash-end table and other nice bits of furniture found in an entry-slash-living room. The table has a folder and accounting-type papers spread atop it. There is a thermostat. That's what I've got written under setting. Okay, so here's what this is about. Now, all of this stuff that I've written here is actually used in the script. Now, okay, um, there is no direct reference to uh, a landing upstage, but um, people enter and exit, so there's a door, right? There's a door to the hallway. People enter and exit to the kitchen, specifically to the kitchen, because of things that occur in the kitchen that affect the plot. Um, This is a murder mystery. There is a knife involved. Knife comes from kitchen, goes back to kitchen. So, um, specifically doorway to kitchen is there. People also say, hey, there's the bedroom. Hey, I got to go take a shower. So, they're exiting another way to bedroom slash bathroom, that sort of thing. And uh, something significant occurs on the balcony. So, I am specific about there being an entrance to the balcony. If you are keeping track... That's four doors, and I did not mention here that there is also a closet, so that would be five doors. I've required for this play, for this play to be done, you need to have a space big enough for five doors. That's that's probably a, an issue. <laughs> I would guess that that's an issue for this play. Um, now, in my mind as a playwright, that is perfectly logical. That makes total sense as far as the story unfolding. It totally works. Um, it's a problem. I've got to say that as a, as a producer, I, I am not going to... Me, me producing my own theater company, I am not going to produce this play. I am not going to produce my own play because... Uh, now, granted, New Playhouse is a, is a fairly small theater company. We've been around for uh, more than three years now. But we don't have huge tech. We are we are a homeless theater company, so we travel to different spaces and do our productions there, and they've all gone so uh, pretty well so far. But uh, but I'm not going to produce this. I'm not going to produce my own play here because I require there to be five doors in my set. That's big. I'm gonna have to I'm gonna have to work on that. That's a little it's a little much. Now furniture, uh, and there's debate over. Of course. Uh, Ultimately, you get down to the production and a lot of furniture, uh, the finding or building of furniture is going to come from the prop department. But what I've said here is that I need a liquor table, I need a desk, I need chairs, I need, a, I need all this stuff here. So not only five doors, I'm going to need whoever is designing and building the walls of this place to make sure that there's enough floor space for all this furniture going on. And not only that, there's the thermostat. Thermostat does figure prominently into the plot um which which and of course uh, going back as as the writer all of this is important all of this is key to the to the expression of my vision to the telling of this story that's absolutely true as a producer that's absolutely ridiculous 
Uh, I can't do that. I cannot do that at all. And sometimes I wonder if maybe, maybe this shouldn't be a play. You know, uh, I think that, I think that if this play were produced, and I've said before that we've had readings of this play, and the audience response has been very positive, um, because because I think the plot is such a web, uh, and they and they appreciate that, but. But the technical requirements are just so much that I wonder if maybe I should just bite the bullet and make this thing a, uh, a film. I don't know. I don't know there. Uh, and that's something that I, as a writer, and that you as writers, are going to have to have to maybe face every once in a while. So I work in theater. I've written a lot for theater. I act some, and I direct, and I do all this stuff. And so my response is, I got this story. I'm going to write it for the theater. I don't know if it works for the theater. And um, and that is that is something that I have to figure out. That I have to come to uh, um, some kind of understanding with my own work about. Yeah, and I think that that I I think that is a conversation that most playwrights don't want to have with themselves when they've written something as complicated as this for their technical requirements. Um, and it actually segues nicely into the uh, a Tom Stoppard play that I that I pulled off the shelf and I wanted to share with you here. Uh, if you guys, if you have uh, the Tom Stoppard anthology of uh, The Real Inspector Hound, this is one of the one-act plays in there. I'm going to pull this open here. Um, let's see. After, after, after Margaret, M-A-G-R-I-T-T-E, Margaret, 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 Margaret. Okay, yeah, uh, that's the play. You may know this play. Uh, if you have this anthology, it is in there, at least uh, the version that I have, The Real Inspector Hound and Other Plays by Tom Stoppard. I'm a big fan of Tom Stoppard, by the way. I think the guy is very smart. He's sharp. He's genius. He's got great flair for writing. Um, and when he is confronted with an idea that does not necessarily work in theater, dude writes it as a movie. Now, of course, he's quite popular. Um, and, and can get away with getting his, uh, his films produced, something like Shakespeare in Love, I don't know, um, but, um, but good writer. So this play, I'm going to read you the opening scene here. Now, okay, so we've talked before about, you know, writing, um, what, uh, time, place, setting. He doesn't have that. He's got, a, in this play, he's got characters, um, nothing else. But under scene, very beginning of the play, I'm going to read this to you. Uh, in case you're not familiar with this play, this is great. A room early evening. The only light is that which comes through the large window which is facing the audience. The street door is in the same upstage wall. There is another door on each side of the stage leading to the rest of the flat. Okay, not so bad so far. Window, three doors. Okay. The central ceiling light hangs from a long flex which disappears up into the flies. The lampshade itself is a heavy metal hemisphere, opaque, poised about eight feet from the floor. A yard or more to one side, and similarly hanging from the flies, is a fruit basket, attractively overflowing with apples, oranges, bananas, pineapple, and grapes. The cord or flex is tied around the handle of the basket. It will become apparent that the light fixture is on a counterweight system. It can be raised or lowered or kept in any vertical position by means of the counterbalance, which in this case is a basket of fruit. Most of the furniture is stacked up against the street door in a sort of barricade. An essential item is a long, low bench-type table, about eight feet long, 
but the pile also includes a settee, two comfortable chairs, a TV set, a cupboard, and a wind-up gramophone with an old-fashioned horn. The cupboard is probably the item on which stand the telephone and a deep-shaded table lamp, unlit but connected to a wall plug. Directly under the central light is a wooden chair. Hanging over the back of the chair is a black tail coat. da 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 da, da. Okay. Okay. A lot of stuff going on in this play. Yeah. Um, I've not seen this play produced. I, I've read this play. And, okay, so you get it. So the idea of this set, living room, couple of doors, window, and this weird thing going on in the ceiling, right? A couple of cords uh, dangling from the ceiling. Got the lamp, got the basket of fruit hanging there, and a whole bunch of furniture pushed up against the back. The first time I read this, and this was some years ago, I started reading, this, this, is, this is actually a lesson that, that I think I've internalized, but I started reading this, this script and didn't understand what he was saying. Um, and all I could imagine was that there was this huge, bizarre thing that was in, hanging out of the ceiling. And it was two things hanging out of the ceiling, but they did things. And the first time, and again, this was some years ago when I read this, I read that, I didn't get it, I flipped to the next play. Now, my current perspective is having read this play since and understanding what he's writing there. Uh, uh, it's, it's funny, it's well-crafted, it's Tom Stoppard, it's a good play. Um, but my lesson here is that if, I, if this play... If this was not Tom Stoppard, if someone sent this play to me as a producer and I opened it up and I read that without knowing anything about dialogue, character development, plot, and that was all that I read, um, I don't, uh, ah, it, it, would, it would be a tough call for me right here, right now uh, as to whether or not I would continue reading the play or I would say, this is insane, and I would close it. And that's in part because theater companies get a lot of plays sent to us, and you, if it's a slow day and this is the only play that I'm due to read and I pick it up and I have some time with my cup of coffee, I'll read the whole thing. And after I get past this idea that there is some significant tech required in this play, right off the bat, huge thing going on, um, I would probably really like this. Well, I do really like this play. I did a quick Google search uh, for, for this show before, uh, before starting to record this. Uh, the Bob Hope Theater did a production of this play in 2006. A play in Manchester, UK, uh, did a production in 2005. And then after that, it was like 2001, 2090s. And now, now, I didn't go through everything. I did the search. I looked at what came up the first page or so, and that was it. That's, for Tom Stoppard, that's not very much. Uh, and probably... The reason these plays, this play is getting produced as, as rarely as it is is because there's some crazy tech involved in this play, and a lot of people that are reading scripts don't necessarily have the patience or have the imagination to get through something like that, when that's the first thing that we throw at them. Someone opens up My Play Takes Stock, they see that they need five doors um, and a whole bunch of furniture and stuff like that. They, oh, man, I just... I don't have all the wood lying out back. I think about the shape of our season, and can I can I maybe convert one set into this set? Maybe that's an option, but that's but that's significant. Now here's the thing: if that is what is required for this play 
to fulfill your vision as the playwright. I am not saying at all that you should not write that. If your play needs a counterbalance hanging out of the ceiling, you write that in there. And Tom Stoppard, to his great credit, pro- I mean, and now he wrote this in like, I think 1970, he couldn't have thought, this play's going to get produced all the time because I'm hanging this thing out of the ceiling. I- I'm-, I'm sure he didn't. And and because of that, he's gone on. He's had He has plays that get produced pretty frequently, like The Real Inspector Hound. Um, and this is one of the ones that's not going to show up, even though he's he's very well known and people want to produce his plays. This is one that's getting produced, uh, well, according to Google, maybe once a year or so, maybe. I'm sure that's getting produced and, and it just didn't show up on my search. But still, that's not a whole lot for a Tom Stoppard play. Yeah. Um, so there's that. Now, of course, you you do that if if that's what your play needs that's what you put in there you you as the writer i as the writer of my works have to be 100% committed to the vision of my production and once i start sacrificing tech hoping that by taking out a part of the essential storytelling process it will maybe get me more productions isn't going to help anything um absolutely keep the tech in there if need be if need be. Um, so, my play on island, right? I've, I've mentioned that one a couple of times. Here's what I've written under setting on, on, on island. Multiple locations, newspaper office, bar, beach, hotel, cannery, outdoor streets, period. And that is it. And that is it. Um, so, what does that mean? So, I have learned some lessons since I wrote Take Stock. Um, now, whether I consciously knew this or not, uh, you know that if my tech, if, if I'm, I'm telling the producer whole bunch of product, whole, whole bunch of locations here, but it does not specifically matter how you, the producer represent these locations. When the characters are in the bar, I think the stage directions are something like they go to the bar and get a drink. Now, I'm producing this. If I have a huge tech budget, I can build all kinds of crazy stuff. If I don't, I can get some chairs and set something up and maybe get some beer or some shot glasses or something in order to get the drinks, right? I've, I have very consciously made this choice with this play because I know that the story is going to be all over the place because it is, uh, because it is a mystery and they're traveling, looking for clues, going to multiple locations. There's no way that I can specify in the script that very significant technical requirements are needed to define each location. I don't know where this is going to be produced. This might be in the round. It might be proscenium. It might be whatever it's going to be. Um, And because of that, to make it easy to produce, I'm going to be, in my writing, unspecific about defining the space, tech-wise. Uh, this is very much in my mind like Prelude to a Kiss by Craig Wright. If you know, if you know that play, the, the play that the, um, uh, Craig Lucas, not Craig Wright, um, that, uh, the, the film was based on, on Prelude to a Kiss, uh, on, on the play. And, and if you've not seen the play, it is essentially the same kind of idea. There are multiple locations here. They're on the honeymoon. They're at the wedding reception. They're out on the streets. They're in the apartment. They're moving around. And he doesn't define each of the locations with huge amounts of tech. Um, 
Now you could, if you have huge amounts of tech, you can get yourself a turntable and rotate the stage. You can fly in all kinds of crap and walls and cars and whatever. And that's great. You can do all that stuff. Um, but, um, but my idea, my, my hope is that On Island is going to have a good story, is going to have compelling characters with motivations that are out there doing things. And if someone reads it and they like the story, the tech will not be uh, an issue in choosing whether or not they're going to produce this play. They might say, I don't like this story. It doesn't fit fit in with our season. You've got some actors here that we don't necessarily have in our area or something like that. But they're not going to say that I can't afford to do it because the tech is too much. And I think that, um, I think that part of what we should do as writers is, is be very cognit- cognitive of that. Is, is, you know, how can we be faithful to our story? How can we propel it forward and still have it be production-friendly? You know? Um, uh, and uh, and I what just came to mind right now. See, this show is spontaneous. Is uh, two plays by Ken Ludwig. Um, you may be familiar with his stuff if you know his play Moon Over Buffalo. Um, it is set in a backstage green room. Uh, the production that I saw of that, the the company did not have huge tech requ- uh, uh, budget. They set up some flats and they got their furniture there and um, and they had, you know, their entrances and exits, but it very much... Now, you sat there and you watched the thing. Acting was fine. Script is funny. Actors are, are good. The directing, you know, the, the whole thing was nice, but you looked at the set and you were like, eh, uh, and it just kind of feels low rent. And everything else about the production can be top-notch. All your talent can be fine, but if this company has no money and they still have to build walls... I don't know. Then they've got to use. Then they've got to use. Uh, you know, flats. They've got to do something there. So Ken Ludwig, uh, one of his more recent plays is a play called Shakespeare in Hollywood, uh, and I I have not seen a production of this, but I read the script, and it is very much like this prelude to a kiss idea. Multiple locations, lots of moving around, lots of actors, lots of funny stuff, of course, from Ken L- Ken Ludwig, um, but does not have the same it doesn't even require walls if my theater company can build all kinds of walls then i'll do it you know i'm gonna i'm gonna up the production values as much as i can but even even something simple as requiring walls someone may be very passionate about your story may be very passionate about your your script but it it comes down to can i even build a wall can i even have that look good and for some smaller theater companies that's an issue the first play that we produced at the New Playhouse was a play called um, The Early Miracle by, um, by uh, uh, Lou, oh, Lou Holton. Um, and and the, uh, we, we did, in fact, build a trailer uh, in multiple locations in The Early Miracle. Um, it takes place all over the place. One that you keep coming back to is the trailer park. And this particular trailer, and I'll tell you what, we spent we spent a, a good deal of money. Should have spent more. Didn't have more. Should have spent more. But we uh, we hired designer. We hired some tech people, and we built a trailer. Damn it! <laughs> we stuck that sucker up on stage, and we did it. Um, but you could probably tell that some of those walls were cardboard uh, of the trailer, um, you know. But we did it. 
and people seemed to very much like the play because it was a funny script, had some good actors, uh, direct direction kept things moving, all that sort of thing. Um, but you looked at that trailer, you're like, yeah, that's a trailer. Is that wall made out of cardboard? Yeah, you know, sometimes you just got to suck it up. If we had if we had much more money, we might have even hauled in a real trailer. I was working uh, doing some summer stock some years ago at the Black Hills Playhouse. While I was there, uh, the company did a production of Nice People Dancing to Good Country Music by Lee Blessing. Um, and first act of Nice People Dancing to Good Country Music by Lee Blessing had one of the characters working on his truck on stage. Working on his truck on stage. Now, you can, in the production of this thing, you could have set this up so that maybe you didn't need a truck on stage. You probably could have done it. But he's got dialogue about working on the truck. He's working on the truck. He's doing this kind of thing. So you could do it. Um, but now the Black Hills Playhouse got a truck, drove that truck right out on stage, had to, had to build supports underneath the stage to support that truck, but they pulled a pickup out on stage. Uh, and you know what? Audience loved the fact that there was a truck out on stage. And even something small as that um, just does great things for the audience if you can do it. But not all companies can afford to do something like that. So I guess, I guess that's the dilemma. And I think the one thing that we're going to keep coming back to, um, not just um, set and paints, but also in the rest of tech, is that if you can, if, if you need to do it, you stand by it and you do it. Absolutely. But I have to accept that take stock's not going to get produced significantly if I keep the tech requirements as they are. Um, and that's that, right? Okay. Um, there's a play called Lacey's Last Chance that I have produced twice. Um, I did it at, it's a 10 minute play. I did it at a short play festival some years ago. And then um, had a chance to uh, to produce another short play festival, and uh, and I, I I jumped at it, wanting to do this play again. Lacey's Last Chance by Gabriel Davis. Um, same thing. Um, it's uh, not a lot of tech requirements, and although I think this play is funny, one man, one woman. It's a little bit risky, a little bit edgy, very funny. The tech requirements on this play do not get in the way. And if I need another cheap, quick play, I'm probably going back to Lacey's Last Chance again. Um, because for me, it serves that purpose. Um, as far as paints go, I couldn't think of a lot of examples where uh, a specific type of paint or color of paint was required in the script. I did think of the musical Chess, where... Um, you know, it's about chess, so why not paint the floor like a chessboard? I suppose you you don't really have to, but I mean, it is about chess, um, and then the way they move around and all that sort of thing, so you, you kind of want to do that. Specifying a certain color of paint is probably not a big issue. Probably not a big issue. Um, you can get away with that. You can do whatever you want with your paints. Um, you know, pretty much that. Uh, but anyway, that's the sort of my thoughts on, on, on set, uh, requirements and that sort of thing. I guess to summarize, if you need to do it to tell your story, you do it. If that means that your play is not going to get produced, you need to realize that if your goal is get this play produced as much as possible, then maybe you need to be conscious. You should be conscious of that from the beginning of the writing process. 
you should perhaps come up with an idea that you know is going to be low-tech before you begin writing. Uh, and low-tech, funny enough, low-tech means not even walls, if you can get away with doing a show without walls, you know? Uh, and then leave, that, leave the rest of it up to me as the producer. You hear the fireworks going off out there? Yeah. Um, leave the rest of it up to me as a producer. If I've got all kinds of money to build you some fabulous stuff and drop glitter from the ceiling, I'm going to do it. If it's appropriate to the play, or maybe even if it's not, I'll drop glitter from the ceiling. But, but you do what you need to do as a writer, and you be 100% aware of the consequences of what you need to do. Cool? Cool. All right. My name is Jonah Knight. You can find me at www.jonahofthesea.com. You can write me an email at jonah at jonahofthesea.com. You can look for me on Facebook. You can look for me on MySpace. You can look for me wherever else, and I may be there or I may not be there. Good? Good. Thank you guys for listening, and I will talk at you later. Money.